Hello and welcome to the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. I'm your host, Alex Danton, and we're excited to announce that we're bringing the Cafe Bitcoin conversation from Twitter Spaces to you on this show, the Cafe Bitcoin podcast, Monday through Friday, every week. Join us as we speak to guests like Michael Saylor, Len Alden, Corey Clipston, Greg Foss, Tomer Strohlight, and many others in the Bitcoin space. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Make sure you get notifications when we launch a new episode. You can join us live on Twitter Spaces Monday through Friday, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific and 10 a.m. Eastern every morning to become part of the conversation yourself. Thanks again. We look forward to bringing you the best Bitcoin content daily here on the Cafe Bitcoin Podcast. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, we're early. We started early. Why did we start early? Well, there's rumors swirling around on the interwebs that the uh, the BlackRock iShares spot ETF has been approved. So we are going to cover this live uh, and see what we can figure out as more comes to light. I have not seen a source yet, an official source. I see people on Twitter saying it. So... We're going to find out what's going on with this. So where did we hear this? Where did this come up from? Thus far, it was Will Clemente. He's, he has a uh, post that he dropped approximately nine minutes ago. Uh, and he says the BlackRock iShares Bitcoin spot ETF has been approved by the SEC. Uh, I do not know where he's getting the uh, information from. Um, He says he's waiting for an official SEC statement. So I guess we're going to find out. Mickey, I see you. Bringing you up. Dombey, see you. Bringing you up. All right. Um, By the way, the Bitcoin... The price of Bitcoin in United States dollars has spiked up to twenty nine thousand. It's come back down to twenty eight as I speak. So it's a one thousand dollar spike that lasted not long at all. Looks like less than ten minutes, um, probably less than that. Morning, Don Bay. Good morning, Mickey. How are you guys doing? What's up, guys? Can you hear me? Yep. What the hell is going on, man? First of all, sorry for being late today, y'all. I, I got my time zones mixed up, but I'm in uh, San Salvador. Bitcoin, uh, so uh, little rumors that the, the ETS been approved? That's the rumor. I haven't seen any official statements yet. From the SEC, but uh, Will Clemente put it out as a tweet. He's a fairly credible dude. I'm not sure he's going to. I mean, who knows? It's Twitter. So the purpose of us starting early today is to figure out what the hell is going on and see if we can find some sources that back this up. Oh, so I didn't miss it. You guys just started early. Yeah, started early. Jacob, I'll call you on the side. Okay, sorry. Carry on. Thanks, man. Mickey, good morning. What's up?
Yeah, so I, I was just trying to figure out what the hell was going on and then noticed you guys had started early, so I popped in. All right. Everybody's job as of this moment is to find official statements that back up this rumor. The Benzinga News Desk is, desk is reporting this. Coin... Um, what the hell's the name of it? Coin... Drop the drop the tweet in here. Oh, it's Coin Telegraph is reporting this as well. Some people are saying it's fake news. One like guy's like, dude, this is really irresponsible. Maybe he just wanted to test and see if he could blow up a bunch of shorts. As of now, still rumors. Something else that's happening, a possible, apparently Fox Business is projecting a possible crash not seen since the Depression, the Great Depression, hitting in 2024. We'll see what that's all about. Can't wait. You can't wait for a depression like... <laughs> No, the what? crash. So you could buy the dip, man. Oh, well, you're assuming that Bitcoin goes down with it, right? It will yeah. initially. So I suppose you you would have to be pretty, you, we'd have to be just ready to roll. Because I don't think it, that would last. I think it would be a, a momentary dip. This is just my opinion, not financial advice, whatever. Take it, Take it for what it's worth. Take it or leave it. But if there is a dip, I think it's not going to last very long and you should be ready because I've observed dips hit. They'll, they'll last for a very short period of time. I've seen dips last 10 minutes and then they're gone. Other dips last a couple of hours maybe, but definitely want to be ready. I see alpha Zeta in the audience bringing you up. So, so people are who are joining are up to speed on what we're talking about here. There is rumors floating around that the uh, the ETF has been approved, so we're trying to establish the veracity of that. So everybody's mission at this moment is scouring uh, for official sources that back this up. Coleman, I see your request. Sent you an invite. Good morning, Hoffa. How you doing, man? Thanks for joining us, by the way. Good morning. I'm going to be here for just a few minutes. I have to hop off, but, uh, you know, given the news, just wanted to join, see if I can help in anything. We don't know if it's news yet. So far, as far as I can tell, it's a rumor. Do you know that it's news? Do you have some information? Nope. All right. No, exactly. I, it's a rumor. I, the only thing I saw so far was the Cointelegraph news. I saw a couple of other sites posting something, but it just seems like they're repeating the same thing that Cointelegraph put out there. So... Hard to know. I tried to find on the SEC if there was anything, can't find anything. So I don't know. For now, it's looking more like uh, it's uh, unconfirmed than anything else. But let's see. We'll, we'll know soon. Right it looks like uh, Eleanor Tarrant uh, from Fox um, just tweeted, BlackRock has confirmed that it's false. Their application is still under review. Well, there we go. Mystery solved. 
Thanks, Coleman. Appreciate that, man. All right. I suppose we could leave the topic as it is because there's going to be a while before people catch up to that. Coleman, can you repeat that again? Who was it that talked to BlackRock and confirmed that it is still under review and not approved? Um, Eleanor Terrett. Um, she's with Fox Business. She posted a tweet um, about five, six minutes ago. This says, BlackRock has just confirmed to me that this is false. Their application is still under review. All right. Got it. Take a note, sir. While we're um, still here and have Hoffa, would love to hear kind of your thoughts off of, we've discussed this before on the show, you know, ever since the announcement was made that BlackRock was even putting in an application for an ETF, like that was pretty big news in the space. And, um, so we went through various different scenarios. Hoffa, for those of you who don't know, is CIO at Swan. Very, very smart guy, in my opinion, possibly the smartest guy in the company. Uh, worked with Merrill, worked with Credit Suisse, I think, or Deutsche Bank, one of the two. Deutsche and Bank. Also, Deutsche. Goldman. Okay. Yeah. Also, Goldman. This guy was coding at the age of seven. Very smart guy. Um, do you want to break down kind of what your thoughts are on what the possibilities are when this thing does get approved? If it does get approved, like, in comparison, for example, to like GLD, for those of you who don't know, GLD was a, was an iShares BlackRock baby, I believe, or it was SPDR. Either way, State Street, SPDR, either way, um, it went from basically a dead start to billions, many billions of dollars in a very short period of time. Should something like this get approved, like what are we looking at here? And does it, does it change anything? Is it significant? Does it even matter? Yeah. So, so you know, first and foremost, thank, thanks, Alex. You're too kind. I doubt I'm the smarter, smartest guy at Swan. You know, there are a lot of very smart people here at the company. But uh, that that being said, a couple of things. I think you know, before saying anything regarding the ETF, uh, let's you know, the price action today just be a reminder to everybody that plays around with leverage uh, that you are going to get burned, right, one way or the other. Uh, people that are leveraged out there. If you look at the liquidations, the short liquidations are just massive today. Uh, and I bet some of the longs as well, because people are starting to read this news thinking that the market's going to go up, right? And they're leveraging on the upside. You are going to get burned. There is, as we say time and time again, there is no alternative. The best thing to do is to buy Bitcoin, unleverage, put it in cold storage, leave it there, and you just wait. It, it, it is as simple as that. <laughs> uh, anything else is going to end up, you know, you're going to end up with less Bitcoins in the, in the long term, I guarantee you that. Uh, on the ETF, a couple of things. I think that uh, the, 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 the Bitcoin ETF, um, you know, the, the beginning being a hardcore Bitcoiner, uh, you know, coming from a little bit from the coding background, uh, I have to say that when I started thinking about ETF, I was against it. Uh, you know, as I just said, I think at the end of the day, it's better to everybody to hold their own keys, hold their Bitcoin, 
uh, having cold storage, right, through a good hardware wallet. Uh, and the, the main reason for that, and I'll get to, the, to that at the end, is because you can verify that it's your Bitcoin, it's sitting in the, in the Bitcoin blockchain, you can see the UTXO, you can sign the UTXO, it's 100% verifiable by you. Anything else, there is some trust involved along the process. Uh, and again, in some cases, that's fine. In others, it's not so fine as we've seen with, with FTX and, and BlockFi and other companies. But uh, why I changed my view on the, on the ETF a little bit is because, you know, as we have more and more conversations, I think particularly with family offices, high net worth, ultra high net worth, small endowments, foundations, pensions, I mean, several investors that have, you know, deep pockets and could benefit from a Bitcoin allocation in their portfolio, right? The reality is that most of them, whether we like it or not, they're not ready to hold their own keys, right? They will, I think at some point, I think the, the improvement that we're going to see in terms of UX, UI for how we hold keys, how we collaborate, how we have, you know, uh, different things that we could do with keys with Bitcoin. And again, just the, the pure UX, um, it's going to be, I think, 10x better than what we have today with uh, custody for traditional assets. Uh, but we're not there yet. And, the, and definitely these companies are not ready, not only on the comfort side, but also in their investment policies, right? Some of these guys just can't do it. They need to be to have you know their assets sitting with a, a traditional custodian. Uh, so the way I see an ETF, it's kind of like a gateway for a lot of these investors to, to get some exposure. Uh, I would say that it's better for them to have an ETF than not have anything, right? Uh, it's better for them to have a Bitcoin ETF than uh, just sitting you know, in treasuries, for example. I think it's a better asset long term. And I think it's for the benefit of their shareholders, the investors, and uh you know, their pensioners and, and, and everybody else that could benefit from this. Um, I think what, what it will do is that, you know, as all of us, I think, as we went through uh, the, the, the journey of Bitcoin, uh, we start by knowing very little. And, you know, there are a lot of different things that incentivize us to learn more. And I think it's going to be the same thing with institutions, you know, as they get in, they get the ETF, they get exposure, they're going to learn more. And then ultimately, I think they're going to get to a place that they understand why this asset is, is different. This is the ultimate collateral. This is, as I said in the beginning, this is the asset that you can actually, it's verifiable. It's, it's right there. Uh, to your point, comparing this, I think, with things like GLD, USO, uh, and other ETFs. And for those that don't know, GLD is the gold ETF. Uh, USO is the oil ETF. There's a major difference here, uh, a huge difference. So let's use the oil ETF because I think it's actually a, a good example in terms of uh, um, uh, of what I'm going to explain. So oil ETF, right? So if you buy USO, uh, you think you're buying oil. First of all, you're not. You're buying future contracts, right? Future contracts is a promise to buy at the future day or to sell at the future day. Um, what happens is that the ETF will just roll these futures. So they'll buy, you know, a contract that it's three months out and then before expiration, it will sell out of that contract and buy, buy again. Um, so it's kind of like a synthetic exposure to oil. If you really want to take, a, take physical exposure of oil through the ETF, you won't get it. Uh, if you buy a future and you want to get the physical delivery, you may be able to get it. There are complications with that. But to get the physical delivery of oil, right, even if that was possible in ETF, you have to pay for transportation, you have to pay for insur insurance, you have to pay for storage throughout the period of time. So 
it's not as straightforward. Receiving physical, physical, <laughs> under quotes, delivery of a Bitcoin, it's very straightforward, right? You just send an address and the Bitcoin should go somewhere. Um, it's going to be the part of the ETF that I'm most interested about is understanding how the re redemption and subscription is going to happen between putting Bitcoins in and getting Bitcoins out. Uh, because that means that there is an escape valve, right? And why is that important? Because if you st start to see the price of the ETF deviate too much or their net asset value, right, deviate too much from the ultimate price of Bitcoin, uh, there is a mechanism for conversion, which means that somewhere, somehow, people are going to have to have real Bitcoin to back it up, right? Uh, so again, I'll finish by saying what I said at the beginning. I don't think there's better alternative than holding your own keys and your own Bitcoin. Uh, but I think an ETF is like, super important for adoption, super important for people to understand. And to your point, Alex, about GLD, I just take a look at what happened with, uh, to gold when GLD was approved. That gives you an idea of what will happen with Bitcoin price, given that it's an asset that I think it has much broader and uh, uh, application through portfolios than than GLD had by the time that it was launched. You know, it's it's very very positive for price and price is important, right? So, th those are my thoughts. And Alex, I'm going to apologize. I'm going to have to hop off in a few minutes for for another meeting, but I just wanted to to drop here and uh, you know get, share some of my thoughts. All good, man. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Love to get you back on here, obviously, more often as much as possible. Hoff is extremely busy at Swan, but anytime we can grab him and drag him in here, we're going to do that. So appreciate you being here, brother. want to say good morning to Shane Hazel, Mitchell, Tomer Strohlight. Also, uh, nobody special out in the audience. We did throw you an invite if you want to come up here. Good morning, gentlemen. What we've been discussing is there was a rumor uh, that the... BlackRock iShares Bitcoin ETF had been approved. That caused quite a, quite a kerfuffle. The, the price of Bitcoin shot up to almost 29500 for a very short period of time. It's been confirmed since then that that was just a rumor and it's not in fact true. Eleanor Terrett, her Fox business, talked to BlackRock apparently who had confirmed still under application. But that little short pump <laughs> just on that little minor news is pretty interesting. Like that's a, like almost an 8% move, something like that in a very short period of time uh, based upon just the rumor of, of an approval. I wonder what will happen in the day that the thing actually does get approved and the, the following days and, and weeks after that. It'd be very interesting to watch. Do, do we know what the source of the rumor was? Don't know, but Will Clementi tweeted it, um, and so did Preston Pish, and I think it just got amplified. There was something in, in uh, Cointelegraph. I think it was Cointelegraph maybe originally tweeted it out, turned out to be not correct, but a bunch of people grabbed it and retweeted it, and et cetera, so it, it started spinning up pretty fast. I think it's interesting because it obviously wasn't out for very long. <laughs> I've already I've heard about it now. I've not I've not heard about it, and it was starting to. So it didn't it didn't get spread out super widely. Is the point I'm making? And we started to see some really quick uh, movement on the price. The interesting psychological thing here is then if people believe 
that the price will shoot up when an ETF is approved. To not to be selling Bitcoin now is to be taking some kind of bet that it won't be approved for a very long time. And I guess stacking that with the news that the SEC wasn't going to appeal the the court's decision against them in the GBTC case, mm. it it just seems like trying to time this thing now is a real is a real dangerous game to play, to play. Right? Like yeah, you're but you're to be. Yeah. Your statement is assuming that they that they even knew about it, right? Like, for example, there are people that are sitting on huge stacks of Bitcoin that sell from time to time, may not have any idea of what's going on on Bitcoin Twitter. In fact, probably don't. <laughs> Cause, yeah, that's it. I'm saying that just like a thin sliver of people for a very short period of time heard this rumor and the price and the price started to move. And so it just to me, this shows some of the I don't know whether it's. It, I would describe it as irrationality, but the <laughs> very risky positions that people are taking by not be, like, like there's people who obviously intend to buy Bitcoin when the ETF approval comes through, you've got to move quick right? um, because the price is going to shoot up very, very quick. I don't know what else you're doing with your money that's so much better while you're waiting. Um, so that's just my thought on that. But, uh, later on, we can talk about like where Hoffa was going with implications of an ETF and how one should think about it. But just even this no this notion that the price popped really, really quickly, um, just on a short, very short-lived yeah. and not widely distributed rumor is yeah. the first observation. Yeah, like an 8% move uh, on uh, in a very short period of time. Absolutely. Paul Manafort, shout out in the audience, throwing you an invite if you want to come up here and chat. Welcome to do so. Peter? So Joe Colisari put out a, a tweet um, that's basically a summary of the of the uh, te technical progression of the ETF approval process, um, and I'll, I'll put it. I'll link it up in the nest. But basically, there's waiting periods. There's this and that that goes on. I mean, the the, the actual approval for an ETF for 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 BlackRock um, is probably at a minimum. Um, 60 or 90 days out just because of the process that's involved with with getting there because there's comment periods, there's waiting periods, there's all this stuff that has to happen technically before they even approve it. I'll put that up in the nest when I, um, I found it, but um, can't do it from my laptop. So give me a minute. All good. Peter, when you're channeling uh, Joe, you sound pretty smart. Thank you. I appreciate that. Do you hear that, Tomer? I mean, Dom, I mean, Shane, I mean, Dom, Dom, Dom is over there cracking up. <laughs> Wicked. Good morning. What's up, brother? Good morning. Um, I'm sad. You say it. Why you say it? Because sats are getting more expensive. What's well, back down to 28K. As as of now, price is still one percent. That makes me a little bit happy. Makes it a little bit happier. That was a scary spike, though. Well, I thought it was really happening. I was like, "Oh shit!" Say goodbye to cheap sets. I was. I, I treated a group to lunch to show them, you know, uh, how easy it was to pay in Bitcoin. And so I was just looking at the lunch bill, like, "Damn, this thing is going up. Overpaid. This is this is bad." 
What, what did it spike to? I was late. I was late because I came in at six fifty eight instead of seven o'clock. You guys started early. It, it spiked to thirty k. Really? Wow. Twenty nine thousand three hundred and twenty seven on one exchange that I'm looking at. Um. Anyways, yeah, the, the Joe's uh, like Joe's tweet. Joe, Joe's tweet is in the nest if you want to look at it. And it does what he titles it as uh, lots of misinformation out there about the next key dates for iShares, BlackRock, Bitcoin, Spot ETF application. Here's a summary. Well, Joe has that bet with uh, Foss. I wouldn't be surprised if he pulled some strings to get it reversed. I bet it was approved. And Joe said, hey, excuse me. No, no, no. Not now. And they said, all right, fine. Larry said, fine. We'll change it. That's just, I'm just kidding. All right. Well, we did start the show approximately 15-ish minutes early uh, due to this. So let's just roll here. Welcome to Cafe Bitcoin. I believe this is episode 455. Shout outs to our supporters on Fountain and Noster Nests. Our mission for this show is to provide signal in a sea of noise, teaching the other 7 billion people on this planet why there is hope because of this bright orange future that we call Bitcoin. There is so much going on. So much to be excited about, so much to be thankful for. What an amazing time to be alive. Uh, if you are not a Bitcoiner, you might be sad, depressed, angry, anxious, whatever the case may be, and get around a bunch of Bitcoiners and they're all optimistic and hopeful for the future. And it's like, what either what drug are these people collectively on? Is it some kind of cult? Like, you know, what weird, you know, barking at the moon, chopping off chicken heads uh kind of rituals are they doing when when we're not around or are they just do they know something maybe that we don't know mm. that is the question for today's show we're discussing the sec decision to not appeal the court ruling regarding the gbtc etf um computing power required to catch up to the bitcoin network uh projections by Kathy Wood, what she thinks might happen to the Bitcoin price here in the future. What else have we got here? Um, also, Argentina has abolished the income tax. <laughs> That's a pretty interesting situation. So we'll discuss that as well. Also, that we have later today, second hour of the show, we have the way of jurors. This is a gentleman who is a sovereign individual, has been um, basically from the United States, but been living internationally knows quite a bit about establishing residency citizenship in other countries. Uh, and we'll have him on here to talk about that. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, we will do it. Any opening comments you guys want to make before we dump, jump into these topics here? Yes, I was in the process of doing a consolidation transaction um, I was actually showing a friend uh, how to uh, how to uh, maintain privacy by using coin control on Sparrow, and Sparrow crashed. And I think I I think that happened because because of what was going on uh, with uh, with Bitcoin price. Doesn't make any sense. Doesn't have to make any sense to you, you rotten apple. It made sense to me. Just let me be happy about what was going on. This is this is how boomers justify what technology is doing in their mind when they don't understand what technology is doing. Yeah, your, your computer is probably hacked. Your Bitcoin's about to be stolen. 
I doubt that. Because my secret, my private keys, my private keys have never been on the internet. So how can they steal it? Jackass. There you go. Peter's safe. Hope the rest of you don't have your private keys on the internet. What's a private key, Wicked? It's the key that lets you spend your Bitcoin. Usually in the form of 12 or 24 words. So the important part is the words, not the actual device. My ledger, my treasure, my whatever is not the important part. Correct. That's just a way for you to store those words and be able to sign transactions a little bit easier. So that's really a signing device and it stores the private key in that device. If you, if you so choose to, you can also, by the way, you can wipe the private key off your device. You don't have to store it on that device. You can just have the words written down or stamped in metal. And then that would be the only copy of it. If you wipe your device and some devices do this, you know, automatically like the seed signer it's a stateless device meaning it wipes the private keys off of it every time you shut it down so the device itself isn't really the important part the 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 important part is the private key which is you know what those words are when you write them down a, a really easy way to describe this process that wicked is talking about is if you're signing a check with a pen you can use any pen to sign that check you don't have to use a specific pen. And that's what the signing devices are. They're basically a pen that allows you to sign a check so that your signature verifies that you are actually authorizing that transaction. And that's basically what's going on, only but, it is way more secure. But what gives the pen permission to do it is the 12 to 24 words. The important part is the 12 to 24, 12 or 24 words, I should say, excuse me. Or 18. That would be that would be the wait. There's 18 word. There's 18 word seed phrases. I didn't know that. Correct. In, yeah. in my analogy, Alex. In my analogy, the seed phrase, the 12, 24, or now 18 words, would be the ink inside of the pen, or the mm. fingerprint scanner on the side of the pen. <laughs> you were doing so good, Peter, with the metaphor. Don't Until the ink far. part. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't push it too far. Like It was, it was great. But th- these metaphors all break down eventually. So it, you know, Bitcoin isn't a pen with ink. Digital signatures have that name because they resemble signatures, but they're not exactly, they're not exactly signatures in, in terms of how you would sign your name on a piece of paper with, uh, with, a, piece, with a pen. We for those of you who don't, for those of you who don't know, Tomer's been around a long, long time, and he has a deep, deep technical understanding of Bitcoin. So, Tomer, explain to these people why yeah. that. Well, so the idea of a traditional signature is it's unique to you and can be verified that it's you, right? Now, forgeries abound. People, there are people, you know, there there are handwriting analysis experts. We try to look at controversial signatures and say, is this really that person's signature? They're obviously not identical each time. There's minor changes in how you sign them, but there's a similarity. People know kind of what, what telltale signs to look for. And of course, someone can make a copy of your valid signature and put it on another document and make it look like you signed another document. So digital signatures, um, in, in the same way that Bitcoin is so much better than gold or in similar ways, uh, digital signatures are so much better than these types of signatures. First of all, 
every digital signature is tied to a digital document. So if you digitally sign one document and someone copies the signature and puts it at, claims it's a signature for another document, it won't verify. Two, you don't need to be a handwriting expert to determine whether a signature for a particular document is valid or not. There's programs that deter determine this. There is, you know, we're dealing with the asymmetric cryptography here, which means that the odds of someone being able to forge a signature, a digital signature for a document, um, are are one in as many, you know, depending on the strength of the key, but they're one in as many atoms as there are in the universe type numbers. It's it's for all intents and purposes impossible to forge a digital signature. How digital signatures work. Uh, or I, I'm not going to say how they work mathematically, but how they work is you generate a public and private key pair. You, you first generate this large random number, which is a private key. You can do it with 12 words or 18 words or 24 words, or you can just do it with, by rolling dice or in anything. From that, a public key is computed. A public key, you can, is, as the name implies, it's public. You can share it with other people. This is what you use as your identity for signing a document. And you say, like, this is my public key. This is document X. Here's the signature that I generated on document X with my private key, which you can share the signature. Um, and you can, and anyone with an algorithm can say, does this public key and this document and this signature correspond? Okay, so, so many, so many Bitcoiner words in such tight clusters. <sighs> I'm not sure I'm, you made it better, Tomer. I'm not uh, I'm sorry. An update. An update to the current topic. Dylan LeClaire just posted that this move, you know how like it spiked up and came back down, wiped out a billion of open interest on that move. <laughs> wow. Don't trade. It's bad for you. And get your and get your coins off of exchanges. If you do not have your coins in self-custody, you do not own it. If you don't own it, you are missing the point of Bitcoin. You do not have opt-out money. You have some some um, uh, a mark on somebody else's ledger somewhere. You need to own your Bitcoin. Get it off the exchanges. Okay, I want to welcome the Way of Jurors to the stage. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. You're about an, early, an hour early for our designated time slot, but you are obviously welcome to hang out with us and join the discussion and opine and contribute as much as you like prior to us focusing in with you. Perfect. Uh, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I'm excited. All right. Uh, really quickly, before we go further, I also want to uh, shout out Shane Hazel and the Brave experience, the Brave mission that he has created. I did it with him over the weekend. We went up to the mountain and uh, I won't dox any other information than that, but I will put it like this. This is something that he has created and that uh, I did with him this weekend, which I now fully support and I'm fully on board with. I'm going to help him build it because I think it's probably one of the most important things we could possibly be doing as well as besides, obviously, Bitcoin and freedom. But it, it dovetails into all of that for reasons. I won't get into any further. We're going to cover it kind of in detail, I think, on the Bitcoin Veterans Podcast this Wednesday night. But I will say this. There are a lot of men out there who could benefit from an experience like this. Whoever's unmuted, I'm muting you. Let's figure out who that is. Stop it. That was um, that was jurors. Okay. 
Um, what was I saying? Oh, um, there's a lot of men out there who I think could benefit from this experience. Both people who are what I consider leaders of men. These are, you know, when I say leaders of men, I mean a strong dude, like a dude who who is not afraid to go out there and make his way through the world and like it does so well uh, in a number of different ways. And there are dudes who are looking for that. I would say it's good for both. For guys who are already leaders, they're already strong dudes in their own right, this will sharpen the hell out of you. And then for guys who are searching for that, there is going to be nothing like getting around a group of extremely strong dudes. And by strong dudes, this is what I mean. Let me be specific. These, these guys are, are veterans. Some of them are combat veterans. Many of them are from the special operations communities. Take you up on this mountain, do some very difficult things that most people would probably be incredibly uncomfortable with. Um, and I'm just talking about exposure to the elements, just stuff. And uh, there are other parts of this mission that I'm not going to explain just yet, but uh, fantastic experience. I would consider what I would consider life-changing, probably in the top three life-changing experiences of my lifetime. And it's going to be a thing. We're going to grow this thing. We're going to bring people up there, uh, leaders to start so that they can understand what the hell it is we're doing. Uh, but it will expand from there. Shane, do you have any comments or anything you want to say about that? Morning, everybody. Yeah. Hey, uh, thanks for the high praise. It's, uh, it, I mean, this has been a vision, uh, and I mean a vision, uh, for a few years now. And now that, you know, it's starting to really come together and have guys come out, uh, that, you know, kind of hand chosen, right? This is, you can see them out there, you know who they are. And it's, it's just, you know, this matter of moving and taking initiative and, and, and action and steps to, to put this vision into fruition where we're going to start to seed this all around the world. And, you know, it's to, to have a bunch of guys that you look to that have this just depth and breadth of knowledge that is amazing to behold that you can learn from each and every one of them. And they are all into learning from each other uh, to go out, to, to just get into the elements, to really become one with it. And, you know, the best part is laugh in the face of uh, misery and, and uncomfortableness and just have the best damn time outlook and, you know, I mean, perspective on, on life is, it's a real honor for me. It's a, it's, you know, kind of a, I guess a dream come true uh, to be able to be doing this with, you know, guys like you and then in this audience. Uh, this is something I think is going to really propel Bitcoin and, and really masculinity and the family and everything that we've been told is just, I don't know, the, the, from the woke crowd, uh, a, a terrible thing, a blight. So uh, getting, getting this moving with you guys, man, I'm, I'm tickled to death and man, I just can't thank you guys enough for coming out and, and slogging through this thing with me and, and experiencing it and the, the great feedback. Hell yeah. It was awesome. All right. I want to welcome up also Tom Tabor to the stage who runs a program of his own, which is different from this, but, uh, he does a program that he does as well. I won't say anything more about it. I'll let him talk about it if he wants to also battle ant. Welcome up. Good morning, Tom. Hey, thanks, Alex. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I, I had the chance uh, a number of months ago out to go to Shane's uh, experience, and 
it was it was really phenomenal. Um, yeah, I, I we have a retreat center here in Colorado where we hold a, a lot of ceremonies, <laughs> and uh, and so I have a lot of experience in that kind of realm. But this experience with Shane was was really special, really personal, um, and in a sacred place, like a truly, actually sacred place where. Um, this place has been used by humans for tens of thousands of years. It's obvious in the landscape and, and the, the place, and it had a profound effect on me. And so I'm grateful for Shane and, and providing that for me. And uh, we've become dear friends as a result, too. So I'm, I'm glad that you guys had amazing experience this weekend as well. So I think that's all for now. All right. Thanks for coming up and sharing, Tom. By the way, good luck. I know you're going on your own journey here deep into the bush <laughs> starting for you know pretty early in the morning tom's very humble guy he's gonna be disappearing into the jungle for about a month so yeah, good I luck can, out there i can say something about that too i'm leaving uh tonight where uh, four of his friends are going out to the uh, amazon jungle in peru to a center with some curanderos uh, ayahuasqueros that have been multi-generational we've worked with them many times and so we each get our own little grass hut in the jungle <laughs> Uh, away from everybody and we just sit there for 30 days um, they bring us food three times a day and the food consists of rice and potatoes mostly sometimes eggs sometimes cucumbers and uh, I did it last summer and that also was an amazing experience just being amongst the jungle and, and living amongst the animals there the birds they're just your friends and the trees and the plants and that's a deeply powerful experience as well so yeah we there's there's good things <laughs> to do in this world to expand your right consciousness on. and do that. So thanks. You bet. Good luck out there. Don't die. Look forward to you being back. Um, thanks. <laughs> really quickly, for those who are joining us right now, the topic of the room is the Bitcoin ETF has been confirmed as not yet approved. That was a rumor that was started. It has been confirmed by BlackRock that that is not yet true. It did spike the price, though, of Bitcoin it was 8% on the day, wiped out a billion dollars of open interest on that move. Pretty wild. Um, shout out to inbound, right? Yeah. Shout out to Jake Owen, by the way, in the audience. Good morning, man. Thanks for joining us. Peter, what's on your mind? Oh, I just wanted to ask Shane if there was um, poisonous uh, plants and bugs and reptiles, because if there is, Dom Bay is never going to do it. Yeah, um, I Tom can tell you um, the we were late in the season getting out there last year, and it was <laughs> one of those things. I was like, "Hey, man, you you really got to get out here, like right now. You can't. We're, there's no more waiting. This forest doesn't want us out here." Um, yeah, there are. There's plenty of uh, timber rattlers and, and venomous uh, spiders and scorpions and uh, plants and everything else out there, but. You know, um, in in the right place, in the right hands, in the right season, uh, this is something that you know is is mitigated, and you know, with the the trusty help of a, a guy that knows what he's doing, uh, uh, is is really not a, a real problem. So, yeah, Dom, um, you know, later in the season, but brother, this is uh, this is the time, and you know, you guys, I know you guys very well. Uh, open invite for for this experience. There's also bears too. <laughs> You don't mind the bears. There's, there's bears, yeah. <laughs> but there's also dudes up there with uh, tools to deal with that who are there to uh, make sure that the bears don't um, eat you, basically. Despite what maybe some people think, that's not going to be glorious. Yeah, there's no glory in being eaten by a bear. 
Uh, Terrence, good morning as well. How are you doing? Hey, just real quick on the ETF. Um, the, I think the price may have shot up because uh, the SEC did not appeal the grayscale decision where the judge said, you know, um, that you can't you, you can't just deny the spot Bitcoin ETF when you already approve futures ETFs. You're, you had horrible reasoning, so either come back with better reasoning reconsider or whatever so i think the open interest you guys are talking about just to clarify i think you guys are talking or dylan's talking about um short sellers being liquidated or on margin and yeah. longs on at the top so i think the longs got liquidated going back down, down too. Right? yeah, yeah exactly. longs got liquidated on the way down on the way up the shorts got liquidated right yeah so i think it was both okay. Okay. Yeah, so Bitcoin's been on the move all day, right? It started around 27K, and I think you're right. I think um, the news that the SEC is not going to appeal the ruling regarding the their, the GBTC application. Terrence, I'm going to meet you for a second. We got some feedback going on. On, the, on that news, I think, got it up to about 28. But right around the time that the rumor started floating that the BlackRock ETF had been approved, that's what spiked it up to over 29,000, close to 29.5. And then it came right back down. Uh, and it has wow. been since verified. Yeah, it has been since verified that that was, in fact, a rumor and not And it was, coin, it was coin Telegraph that tweeted that. And then they, <laughs> and then they deleted the tweet. So um, lawsuit. <laughs> That's pretty bad. Billion dollars, bro. Wow. Yeah, they're going to get some lawsuits for that one. It's amazing the danger, you know, you like, in putting together the information that, that we have. There are people who rightly knew that a Bitcoin ETF wouldn't, couldn't be approved by this date. So I guess they were holding out some short positions with that calculus in mind. What they didn't calculate was that a rumor that convinced people who didn't know what they knew would come out and cause the price to spike and they got liquidated. Markets are very, you know, they incorporate all the information in the world, not just the, not just the information that uh, comes out of, comes out of regulators when and if they do. So it just goes to show the dangers of, you can never really anticipate everything in the market. And and for those that are that are concerned about the responsibility of self custody, and since we're speaking about an ETF, and that ETF will be you will you will be able to, um, I guess invest in Bitcoin, but not necessarily own the underlying asset. For those that are concerned about um, their control of the asset and the responsibility that goes along with it, um, I can tell you as a boomer that it is far easier than our current banking system. Um, it's just something that that you may not be familiar with. Uh, once you get familiar with it and you begin to see how uh, you can interact with the network and how powerful this network is, it's a it's a huge bonus. But for those that are still don't want that responsibility or want to uh, share that responsibility, there are lots of different ways to um, custody uh, a Bitcoin where uh, you have uh, another entity. Um, that uh, uh, helps you to maintain uh, your keys. Um, Swan has a, I believe Swan has a, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe Swan has that product. Unchain has that product. 
There's lots of ways that you can get your uh, corn, get your Bitcoin off of exchanges where it is absolutely not yours um, and uh, into your possession in a in a safe manner that is uh, comfortable for what your particular needs are. All right. If nobody has anything else, we will move on topics. So something that we have discussed fairly regularly on this show is the computing power of the Bitcoin network. And uh, it's pretty substantial. So Sailor did a, an interview where he's talking about it. We have that ready to go. I think it's worth listening to if you haven't heard it. Excuse me, heard it. Let's go ahead and play that, Jacob, if you are ready. How much computing power do I need to catch up with the Bitcoin network? And the answer is all of it. <laughs> all, like how much computer power? All of it, right? If you took all of the computing power of Microsoft and Azure and AWS and Google and Facebook and everything, all of it, you're still not catching up, right? So what we've established is, by, by the way, how, how, how much Navy do you need to catch up with Bitcoin? All of it. All the navies in the world maybe are starting to approach the power of Bitcoin and then all of the computing power of the world isn't 10% of the power of Bitcoin. Wouldn't dent it. And then when you look at the cryptos, you know, that, that attempt to compete, you've got a handful of proof of stake networks. And the last time we calculated, we, you know, we calculated, said, well, if Bitcoin is Mount Fuji, this next one is like a grain of rice. And the other one is like a housefly. I remember when that came out. It's really good. How's your grain of rice? It's funny to think about in those scales. Speaking of computing power, how does the the um, hash rate go from 522 ekahash yesterday? That was the height that I saw it at. To now. 402. I mean, that's a, isn't that a huge swing in, in uh, computing power? Don't laugh at me, Wicked. I'm asking a serious question. You guys want to explain this? These yeah, are all, like a, don't all averages. Really short -term estimates. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes, you know, sometimes if you're rolling a die, you'll get four or five sixes in a row. It's, it's a similar phenomenon. It doesn't mean that six is the average value of a die, of a die roll. And uh, th these, when the difficulty adjustment happens, it's based off of two weeks worth of um, blocks. So there's a there's a lot of opportunity. You know that that's um, that's like fourteen hundred blocks or something. That's even more than that. Sorry, it, it's a, it's like a lot of blocks. So the statistical averages should kick in and smooth things out. So that that's a better number to go with. What the actual difficulty is. One one thing I've kind of liked looking at more recently is what I call the target hash rate. And it's the hash rate that you get if you derive it from the target hash, right? So it's not actually looking at the, the, the blocks coming in or the times that they're coming in, really. 
like the new ones, it's looking at what the target hash is, which, you know, for those who know, who don't know, the target hash is basically just another way of, of saying the difficulty. It's like the inverse of the difficulty, right? But if you look at the target hash, you can actually derive what the hash rate should be in order for you to get 10 minute blocks given that target hash. So, you know, I, I, I would call that the target hash rate. And that so is quick, that's quick, 436 exa hash right now. Okay. So, quick clarifying question. When I see the hash rate at 522, or when I hash the, see the hash rate currently at 387, does that have to do with the 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 hash rate currently at the current block? Or, it has to do with or, the with the block times coming in and the randomness of them, right? And sometimes you're going to get a bunch a bunch of blocks coming in, and it's going to make that estimate of the hash rate really high. And sometimes you're going to get a big dead zone where a bunch of blocks didn't come in, right? You got Okay, so it doesn't really have anything out. to do with the with current computing power that's either being employed or or taken away from the network. Okay, it, I get it. it. Thank it you. Hey, a, Peter, Peter I, I jumped on your, your post yesterday about this. Um, it, it It's really helpful if you think of the hash rate metric as a reflection, not as a direct reading, okay? Because there is no such thing as a direct hash rate reading. It's not like you just go to a node and it tells you, oh, right now it's this many hash rate hitting the the network no it's it's a it's a calculation that's made so it reflects partly the amount of work done which is what wicked is talking about if you have a, a period of time where you know a bunch of blocks come in in a very short amount of time much faster than a 10 minute average you're going to see that bleeding edge hash rate spike to reflect that because it's it's a calculation based on the work done and the known difficulty. So if suddenly a whole bunch more work is done than was expected, you're going to see that hash rate reflection spike, which is why it's helpful, as Tomer said, to look at a larger sample size. Uh, th this is the question you should ask yourself when you see a hash rate on any site, which is what is the what is the sort of you know sample size of this hash rate? Are we looking at just you know today's blocks in the last? couple weeks the last 30 days 90 days like it's going to make a difference and to actually think of it more as like a dynamic scale where the longer the sample size you're going to see a more reliable hash rate to me looking at like the current hash rate up is a, not as useful point. as looking at like a trend so basically the point is is like think of it as a metric to maybe zoom out on and see the trend but like today's reading doesn't necessarily mean so much more than just you know wow there was a ton of blocks found in the last 24 hours yeah and and, and the average that you're taking whether it's 24 hours or seven days or 14 days or whatever i mean it, you know there, there's kind of a sweet spot right and i think jameson lop has done some research on this and he found that the sweet spot is like 11 days or something like that right because if you get too if you get too many days in your average then you're actually going to be lagging behind what the actual hash rate might be right if you're doing the average over 30 days then obviously you know you're going to be lagging behind what the real hash rate is if it's if it's like exploding right and so it kind of you know there's there's a bit of a sweet spot there you don't want to get too small of an average of the blocks but you also want to get too many blocks too large of an average Tomer, you know, Wicked, is, hold on, Tomer, give me a second. Tomer, yeah. Wicked, Ant, and TC, thank you for your explanations. Um, I'm hoping to, like, be able to absorb 1% or 2% of what you guys say. 
But I think that for people who are like me and are not as technically adept as you guys and don't understand this correctly, the best way to describe this is this is not computing power that is being employed or taken away from the network. It is an average, and that's really all I need to know so I can stop looking at it. Yeah, that is the way a lot of people think of it. It's an average of computing power, though. It's an average of block times coming in. If you look at the difficulty, Peter, it's at 60 trillion right now. Difficulty is an arbitrary measure. Um, It was originally set at one when Satoshi was mining by himself, and it stayed at one for a little while. So um, if you just say a a difficulty of one is kind of how much energy you can get from a single CPU, I don't think that that's necessarily, I think it probably takes a couple of CPUs, but let's say there's one, it's the equivalent of 60 trillion CPUs. It's a number that's almost too mind boggling. You know, it's, it's more than the dollars that the U S government owes. It's so big a number. Uh, So it's, it's a huge number and and that'll give you a sense of how much can, you know, of some kind of number of computing power because, you know, there's 7 billion, let's say there were 6 billion people in the world just to make the math easy. It would be like every single person on earth had a hundred computers hashing, working on solving a block. I love that. I, I, yeah. I, I love, I think, I love that, Tomer. I love let me that give you, can I add to on to that? Because that's, that's so good. What Tomer just said, like, look at the difficulty. It's like the current that, that the miners are swimming against metaphorically, so to speak. Right. So we just hit a fresh new all-time high with a six and a half percent increase in difficulty because the blocks were so fast in the last two weeks. So now watch what happens to block production this difficulty epoch so for the next two weeks see if blocks start coming in a whole lot slower or if they start coming in right around 10 minutes or if they continue to come in faster than 10 minutes that's the thing to watch because you just literally got a whole new degree of difficulty that we've never seen before if we see blocks continue to come in faster than 10 minutes over the next, uh, you know, 2016 blocks, roughly two weeks, then, you know, we've probably added hash rate during this period of time because this difficulty has never been seen before, but look, we're getting fast blocks. So I think hash rate is useful. You just maybe need to start adding in a little bit of looking at what the difficulty is doing and maybe pay attention to just the pace of blocks or the average block time during these epochs when the difficulty moves a lot. And that will give you a better sense of is, is hash rate running into a wall and actually struggling now? Like if we see, you know, blocks average 10 and a half or 11 minutes for the next two weeks, you probably know like, well, the hash rate didn't necessarily get added to as much as the difficulty went up. And you just kind of watch that tug of war and that'll kind of give you a better framework to think about the hash rate in. So just just as a little uh, you know fact here, when the difficulty was originally one at the very beginning of Bitcoin, and and like you know I think it was Tomer that said that it stayed there for a bit, stayed there for a while before it actually adjusted up. But when it was at one, the odds of mining a block per hash was still one in four point three. Uh, billion so it's still a pretty like you know the odds weren't great and obviously your computer can do you know probably hundreds of thousands or, or even millions of hashes i mean i guess this was back then though 2009 so computers weren't nearly as 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 good back then but still you know maybe a few cpus good cpus could could maybe hit a hit a block every once in a while right 
But I mean, still one one in four point three billion chance per hash of hitting a block, right? And now it's sixty one trillion times harder, right? I mean, that's just fucking crazy. Sixty one trillion times harder than one in four point three billion. So multiply those two numbers together, and that's the odds you have now. This is what I love about Bitcoiners. Even when you ask them to stop and shut up, they won't until you understand what is going on. I love it. Thank you. Well, we're, we're going to hold you down to make you understand. I'd love to see Vegas odds on what Wicked just said with the probability of, of, of landing uh, the ultimate prize and what Vegas would say the probability if Peter said nothing, a whole Cafe Bitcoin episode. Dom, the answer to that first one is look how many people point their hash at pools. That just tells you what an astronomical probability it is of hitting a block yourself. So people team up. Yeah, I saw okay. them. I'll go ahead. No, go ahead and finish. I was going to switch I, topics. I was only, I remember we talked about a one, one episode long back that, that metaphor of looking for a grain in the sand on like a local beach versus looking for one on the whole planet and then looking for one on every planet in the galaxy. I thought that one was pretty good uh, for, for, you know, exploring the hash. All right, while we're on this kind of vein, why don't we hit some stats? It's been a little bit since we've hit stats. Ant was out in the field doing things, uh, so he was unavailable for about a week, but he's here now. So if you're ready, brother, let's do it. The Bitcoin impenetrable force field level is at. Well, we're talking about it, but I got 389 on the seven-day average exahash per second, 389 exahash per second. I don't know if y'all saw, but the mempool went way down. Like I know I come in here and I talk about like hundreds of thousands of transactions in the mempool, but it's been down to like 31,000. I'm looking at it right now, 31,300 and some change keeps going up. Uh, coming in pretty fast too, I've noticed. Fastest fee right now to get into the next block, 16 sats per V-byte. We have 27,536 blocks to go until the next halving, which is about 191 days, depending on how you're counting that. And we've had in the last 24 hours, almost $29 million USD in mining revenue. And that's it for now. Well, what about a security budget? <laughs> yeah, well, to that, I mean, the last block, just looking at the previous block, uh, Remember I said that most of these times I look at these blocks and it'll be like 2% is the fee, 3% is the fee. Uh, the last one was 6.4% was made up of fees. Wicked. Uh, just real quick, and then I have to head out, but I wanted to build on that grain of sand analogy and maybe refine it a bit, right? So not only is it like, you know, just finding a, a single grain of sand, but it's but really what it's like is, you know, maybe there's like, there's this difficulty, this hash um, target, right? Which is, can be thought of as like, you need to find a grain of sand smaller than a certain, you know, a certain size. And so you're, you're guessing, you're pointing to like a grain of sand on a planet and then you measure the size of it. And if it's under that size, then it's accurate and you get the block, right? Like you, you win that block. 
And then if, if people are finding grains of sand that are under the size too quickly, then the difficulty adjusts and the size of the grain of sand goes down, right? So there's fewer grains of sand that are now under the target. And so now you look again, you point at a grain of sand and, you know, nope, it's too big. Oh, nope, that one's too big. And then you find another one, right? And, and if more and more people are looking, you're going to have a, big, a greater chance of finding a smaller grain of sand, right? And then if you find too many too quickly, then it adjusts down again. And now you have to find an even smaller grain of sand, right? So basically what's happening right now is same thing's happening with, with uh, Bitcoin mining. It's like as more and more people look for a block with a hash under the target, you have to adjust that target down further and further, which in effect is adjusting the difficulty why, why, why can't right. you why can't you just pick a really small grain of sand to start with why can't you well i mean it, it, it's random right it's all random so you're pointing at a random piece of sand right and it's not <laughs> maybe it's not obvious like let's say all the all the pieces of sand look the same in terms of their size but then you know when you measure the weight of it like let's say it's the weight then you measure it and you're like oh shit that was a that was a really heavy one Right. Yeah, that's the that, whole. The that's the, the whole point of mining. That's that's why that's why it's it, it's actually enforceable at a certain level of energy, right? That's why the difficulty uh, adjustment actually works because you can't pick the size of this grain of sand. Correct. It's totally random when you hash. That's a the great analogy. The output. The output is random. I, that's yes. why I prefer the analogy of you're standing in front of a room full of people and you're saying, "Guess a number uh, between here and here." And they all start screaming out guesses. You know, if I say guess a number between one and a hundred, and I have a hundred people standing in front of me, we're probably going to guess the number pretty quickly. So uh, now, I, now I say though, guess a number a between number. one and a hundred thousand, and it's going to take them a long ass time. Okay, we need to speed that up. Let's bring in you know a hundred thousand people. And so it's that's it's it's kind of like that. It's a guessing but, game. But TC, it's not what I don't like about that analogy is it's not a single number that wins. And a lot of people have this misconception that it's just a single guess that is the winning ticket oh no when in reality it. it's you know you have to get under a certain amount to win and it's the randomness that causes you to like most likely not get under that threshold so most of your guesses are going to end up being over the threshold but then if you get lucky you get one that's under it's cool. uh there's many analogies it's good to find one for each stage of someone's kind of level of understanding Oh, that was deep. TC is a shadowy super coder and a wizard. I like to I like to teach him the right way from the start. I want to welcome up Satch's stacking sats. Good morning. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Do you have any thoughts you want to add or questions? Oh, did he just disappear? I think he did. Maybe he was up here on accident. Macro minutes. Good morning. Welcome. Hey, what we were just hey, what we were discussing before is there was a rumor. For those of you who are just joining us, there was a rumor uh, that the BlackRock Bitcoin spot ETF had been approved that was um, circulated pretty widely uh, until it was later refuted. BlackRock itself refuted that, that it has not, in fact, been approved. Did cause a very interesting spike in the price of Bitcoin, though, for a very short period of time. I think it went up as high as roughly 8% on the day. Uh, and the up and down move wiped out about a billion dollars, apparently, of open interest. That's pretty wild, wild stuff. 
I mean, that's the positive out of this, right? All the apes just sitting there leveraged instead of buying spot deserve to get wiped out. This, this guy named Jimmy, his handles bunk Freeman. And he just said, and just like that, the SEC may have just found its new reason to deny the spot ETF. <laughs> oh, <laughs> brutal. Uh, hey, Alex, I'm, I'm back on stage. This is Satch. Hey, uh, welcome up. One thing I found interesting was that that huge pump basically showed that the market had not priced in the ETF, uh, at least in my opinion. And now we may see the market begin to price in before it actually gets approved. Um, and so, you know, stack now while you can. Man, that's always been my approach. Stack now, stack now while you can. Battleland says it all the time. Clothes better hurry up. It's like that meme. Um, forget the uh, the name of the meme, but it's like you guys still have fiat to stack sats with. It's like uh, I don't, <laughs> I don't have anything else to put in right now, man. Well, I keep uh, getting more, which I keep. Then you know you got to do the thing. There's a well, process yeah. here. Uh, uh, shout out to Doctor Jeff. Shout out to Dr. Jeff in the audience. No, there is not an approved Bitcoin ETF. Sad face. Or in some ways, depending. Happy face. If you know, you know. More time for the plebs to stack. Plebs better hurry up. So Natalie did an uh, interview with Kathy Wood. Kathy Wood was making some interesting projections her bear case scenario for the price of bitcoin i think by 2030 was the time frame was 258 grand $258,000 per bitcoin that's her bear case base case $682,000 per bitcoin by the year 2030 bullish case 1.48 million dollars per bitcoin by 2030 I'd also add that those projections are on the assumption that shitcoins are still around and are also appreciating in value because ARK, you know, believes in shitcoins. How's your grain of rice doing, bro? Spoiler alert, it's not rice. <laughs> How's your uh, pretend grain of rice described by your white paper doing. No other comments about Kathy Wood's projections here? Or just the price of Bitcoin in general? I feel like a lot of times even traditional thinkers like her that have been relatively successful don't really understand just how scarce Bitcoin is. Like, I think they always undershoot the possible upside because there's never been an asset that is completely inflexible on the supply side, you know? And I think when you have all of the liquidity draining off of exchanges over the past 
year and change. I mean, obviously, as price goes up, some gets put back on exchanges. But I think there are a lot of people who are truly moving over to Bitcoin who, I mean, at least for me personally, I don't ever plan on selling it for fiat. I want to exchange it for goods and services at a future date. So there isn't really a USD price that would be compelling to me unless, you know, something in my personal life happened that necessitated I liquidate some. So I had I had a, a a conference that I went to for work last week, and I spoke with a lot of my colleagues about Bitcoin. Surprisingly, right? I mean, my my industry has nothing to do with Bitcoin, but you know, just found its way into conversation because they know that I'm kind of a Bitcoin guy. And one of the things I thought was really interesting is a lot of them seem to start to understand the difference between Bitcoin and crypto. Like they they very quickly realized. <laughs> Like I'm not a crypto guy. Like some of them would would be like, "Yeah, hey, he's into crypto," and I'd be like, "No, I'm into Bitcoin." And like all of them started to get it, right? Like they started to understand, okay, like there's something different about Bitcoin than crypto. And I would explain it, and and they and they seemed to get it. They were receptive to it. And then when they would ask about like investing in Bitcoin, right? I'd be like, "What's the best way to get into it?" I'd be like, "Well, if you've got Cash App and just start, you know, DCAing into Bitcoin through Cash App or whatever, right?" And there's still some resistance to that. And I think one thing that's going to be really interesting to see play out is once you do have an instrument for normies to just start to allocate to Bitcoin, like an ETF, I mean, I guarantee you all the people that I talk to, like all my colleagues who showed interest in Bitcoin, they're not going to go through the hassle of, of doing the cash app thing, at least not right away, not until they kind of actually start to understand Bitcoin but they will allocate to a Bitcoin ETF. Like I guarantee you all of them will just, you know, even if it's a few percent, but like it just making it easier for them to do that, I think is going to be like kind of a game changer at first. And then hopefully, hopefully they actually got on the rabbit hole once they, you know, start to see some outsized gains from having, you know, money in that ETF. And they're like, wait, what's actually, you know, what's actually going on here. But, but it will be interesting once that becomes available. Hey, Alex. Um, this is Lynn. Thanks for bringing me up. Good morning. I, I, I do have some uh, some to add about the Kathy Woods Natalie interview, which was great. And I think if anyone hasn't listened to it, it's really worth a listen in its entirety. But you know, Arf has been Kathy Woods in particular has been tracking Bitcoin and recommending it for institutions since 2015. So. I honestly am not sure what her stance is or what the firm stance is on other coins, but she definitely is an advocate of Bitcoin as a financial technology. And, you know, I think what was helpful for me in listening to it is talking to other people, boomers, things like this that are, you know, reticent about Bitcoin. She breaks it into six different buckets that I thought was, was you know, very precedent and just talking about the numbers in those buckets and taking on average, a 2% allocation of that as an asset class and how asset classes are generally added into institutional portfolios, kind of the work that Hoffa does with the with the portfolio, um, Nakamoto portfolio tool, but talks about institutions buying it, corporate treasuries adding to it, um, remittances, which, uh, you know, once people start understanding the the reduction almost to zero of fees sending money across border, Sovereign treasuries, which, you know, as they look to replace U.S. treasuries and have uh, an asset that 
you know, is harder than their own currency. Emerging markets, where I'm, you know, super focused on living here in Mexico, but talking about entire populations using using Bitcoin as, uh, or you know, and derivatives like Lightning as ways of, um, you know, passing their own currency, as we see in Argentina, and then economic settlement, which is future, you know, just being able to 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 replace Visa, Mastercard, and things like this in economic settlement. So it's a great exercise that she goes through. And um, and I think it helps her numbers make sense. A lot of people throw out projections, but you know this interview really dives deep into how they actually come up with those numbers and those projections for the for the price of Bitcoin. So I thought it was super valuable, and I thought Natalie did, as always, just a great job of just uh, simplifying something that you know uh, often you know is complex or or just is like a number on a screen. So um, give it a listen. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. As usual, Tao, what's up? Good morning, man. Hey, good morning, Alex. Um, I, I don't like the price action that's happening, so I need Dr. Bear, I think he was in the audience, hopefully he's still there, to come up here and instill a little bit of fear in people to remind people that, hey, there's you know still a lot of risk, whatever you want to call it, out there. Um, recession, looming, job reports. So I need Dr. Bear to come up here to help a little bit. And then the other thing is just to maybe, if he can, just give his comments on the situation of why the movement happened the way it is and what his um, outlook is into the future. Because I need Tal, to if you want to, if you want to win Stack Chain, you're just going to have to dig a little deeper into your pocket to come up with some more cash to be able to buy that block. Sorry. still like to get dr jeff's thoughts on stuff so but i know he's been like doing doctor things lately so i think he has limited time to participate in this kind of shenanigans lately but hopefully one of these days we will uh prod him and coax him enough maybe we just need to make fun of him more i don't know we'll figure out the the perfect equation to get him to come back up here and share his thoughts good morning neil jacobs what's up man Good morning. What are we talking about? Sorry, just joined. Currently, we're uh, talking about Stack Chain. Why? According to Peter, everything comes back just all leads road to Stack Chain. A, a number of things. We covered a number of number of talk, topics this morning. The first was that rumor about the uh, the Bitcoin ETF being approved, which has since been debunked. Not true. Did cause a big spike in the price, though, for a short period of time. Uh, and then we were talking about Bitcoin energy, or I'm sorry, the amount of computing power in Bitcoin did some stats. Some of these really smart guys explained some of that stuff. Um, yeah, a few other things. Next up, though, we've got Argentina has abolished the income tax. Okay, this is crazy. So this is a tweet from Jimmy Song. And he goes, so Argentina has abolished the income tax ahead of its presidential election. You guys seen that guy, Mile? He's a complete savage, man. Anyway, and I think they're afraid of him. Just my opinion. So, in a last-ditch attempt to defeat the libertarian candidate who is leading in the polls, this is Mile, the libertarian candidate they're talking about. This proves, number one, they're printing money. They really don't need to tax you explicitly. Number two, 
the nation itself is a stealth or I'm sorry, inflation itself is a stealth tax that can be imposed without any legislation or transparency and that the mechanics of money are going to become way more obvious to people moving forward. Does anybody have any thoughts on that? What, anyone have any idea what the income tax rates were in Argentina before they got taxed? Were they like one or two percent, or were they like twenty, thirty percent? We know so little about these other nations. Don't know. I, I was hoping that uh, that jurors who lives in South America might be able to make some comment on this. According to this, I watched a little clip about it. I guess. 99% of the population now has to pay no taxes. And yeah, so they're I just taxing Googled it. the top 1% of income earners. So I just Googled it. The, the top tax bracket um, or the typical tax bracket stood at 35%. So you can imagine this is eliminating the income tax is going to give everybody like 50%, a lot more money, right? If, you, if they were taking 35% of your money. I guess it's a 50% increase in what your take-home pay is because they were taking a third of it, all right? So you, you had 66 cents, now you have 100 cents. That's 33 more cents. It's a 50% increase in what you're taking home. But that's going to drive inflation up by 50% because it, it has nothing to do, right? It's like, it's, it, there's no more food. There's no more homes. Just everyone has more money now. So it, this is not going to be good for solving the inflation problem and always these these ideas although perhaps um if it stops if the government did stop printing money then you know at least it would be people who are buying things for themselves rather than the government buying things for themselves but we but as jimmy's uh tweet points out the government's just going to print as much money as they want for whatever they want so it's kind of like this money surge free-for-all in argentina but it's certainly a chaotic thing to announce like the day before an election or the week before an election. I mean, is it chaotic or is it brilliant? Like the, the incumbent can basically say, I did this for you guys. Don't you all love me? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a why, well, maybe the word, the choice of the word chaotic was inappropriate or not ideal, but you know, it's, it, it's, it's a wild move, right? To, Oh, definitely a wild to move. To do this in the last, it's a move that's both desperation and will cause chaos. Like there's just no question about it. People are now starting to do some math. They're like, Oh my God, I'm going to, my paycheck's going to be 50% bigger than it was before. Maybe I should go out, you know, now I've got a lot more money. Maybe I should put in that bigger bid on that home or start this or start that. Or, or which maybe there increases the velocity of money, by the way, which has a direct impact on inflation. Who knows what's going to happen. It's another interesting experiment, you know, and the Argentinians get to be, the unwilling guinea pigs of this wild experiment of a sudden massive elimination of of income tax with no and again we don't know how long it'll last we don't know when it kicks in we don't know what the government spending policy and money printing policy is going to be beside it so it's it's really hard to know it's just everything what i'm curious the rules are made up as they go along is the main point of fiat money what i'm curious about is to see does this uh, brainwash enough people to trust the government or the government, the lizard side of the government one more time. Because one interesting thing was, I'm I'm trying to remember who we had up here before who's from Argentina who is basically saying, look, the people just don't trust these guys anymore. 
that's why Melee is crushing it. Because they just, anybody who's like the typical legacy lizard politician, they're like, yeah, no, we're, we're done with that. We've had enough. Uh, we've got Danny up here. Good morning, Danny. I understand you're from Argentina. Yeah, Alex. How are you doing? How are you doing, guys? Thank doing you great. Thanks for, for joining invite. us. Well, I'm, I'm kind of uh, on a noisy place. I'm in the airport now. Can you hear me well? Uh, not really. It's quite loud behind you, but uh, you want to give us some insight as to what the people are thinking here? Okay, well, uh, you know, this is uh, the next election. It's going to be pretty different from everything we have before because uh, there is no two parties now in, in the election. We, are, we have three parties competing. Within, uh, with each other here. Um, Millet is, uh, is an, uh, he's the leader of, of a new party that's absolutely different from the two previous uh, because he's a libertarian, he's an economist, uh, Austrian economist school. So I, I have a, a pretty good uh, hope he he can win the election. Uh, it would be wild for Argentina because uh, I think not just for Argentina but for the whole world because it's the first time we're going to have a government leaded by an Austrian economist. You know, this is pretty wild and and I think it's going to be great for, for Bitcoin too uh, because he proposes uh, not just a, a dollarization of the economy, he's proposing uh, free competition of currencies. So anybody will be able to use uh, whatever they want, uh, Bitcoin, dollars, pesos, whatever. And, and the, the, the economy and the people will decide uh, which of those going to win. Uh, so I think it's a great scenario for, for Bitcoin if he uh, managed to win the election. And uh, regarding this uh, income tax uh, abolition, I would say, uh, I, in reality, uh, this guy, which is now uh, the um, economics minister, his, his name is uh, Massa, he not just... Uh, um, cut the income tax skills. The, um, what is called, uh, IVA. Okay, Danny. I'm sorry. I'm gonna meet. I'm gonna meet you because it's now become basically impossible to hear you and understand you over the the loudspeaker. But we did get what you were originally saying. So thank Hello? you for sharing that. I don't know. I think I received a call. On. No, we muted you. That's what happened. You had too much background noise. It was impossible to hear what you were saying for a minute there. But thank you for sharing your perspective, man. Do appreciate it. Way of jurors. I'm just going to call you jurors. Yeah, you can just call me jurors. Um, the other thing I wanted to add, I think this is a direct response. Um, so the libertarian candidate a few weeks ago said that uh, the Argentinian currency was worthless. 
And that is what has caused the uh, price of the peso to collapse over the last couple of weeks. Um, I think it went back under a thousand, but it had gone over a thousand to one U.S. dollar. So it was actually a direct response to that, and it only affects um, income of about five thousand U.S. dollars at the current rate. But of course, that represents about ninety-nine percent of Argentinians make less money than that. So. Uh, Yes, yeah, completely political decision, and it will be interesting to see what the long-term ramifications are um, in Argentina. Yeah, I agree. Either way, like when Danny was explaining that, I was thinking to myself, all right, let's say, for example, just walk through the scenarios here. What if Mele gets elected, and they do have an Austrian economist, basically, as a president for, I guess that would be the first time in history, maybe? that an Austrian economist was elected as the president of a country. And then what are the, you know, what are the policies that get enacted? Is he able to get traction even uh, on enacting what he wants? And then what happens 10 years from now? Like what is the effect on the economy of that country? Be very interesting to watch. And then also, as you mentioned, Jers, like what the heck happens when they abolish income tax for 99% of the population? Yeah, and, and what sort of, as you said, what, what sort of uh, power, even as president, will he really have to enact the change? You have the currency that's so debased. You've got the debts in the international market, which still need to be repaid. Um, so he's almost left with a situation where he's either going to have to start over with a new currency, um, peg it to the dollar, something like that. Um and will he actually be able to do that? It sounds good on paper. It's it's good rhetoric. Either that or what if there was this this one currency that like wasn't issued by human beings? And what if it was like had a, a fixed limit? And what if there was a decentralized network where you could send any amount of value to the other side of the planet at the speed of light at almost no cost? And nobody could stop you from doing that. What if there was something like that? And, and wouldn't that be interesting, too, because Argentina is a much larger player than, say, El Salvador. So uh, it could really be a game changer if you were able to do that. So my OK, and I'm not an expert on El Salvador, but my understanding of, of what it took for um, Bukele to do what he did was he basically had to remove a lot of corrupt people from positions of power um, and then apparently like there's a lot of little, I don't know what the right word is, but the country's divided up into little districts. Maybe district is the wrong word, but each one essentially has its own governor and they all have an impact on whether you can pass certain types of legislation or not. This is my understanding. If I'm wrong, forgive me. Um, but he had to make sure that all of the people in those positions also supported him uh, in order to get this done. So from what I understand, Argentina is not that different, that there's a bunch of little fiefdoms, basically, and there are potentially corrupt individuals in charge of each one of those. And without the support of those people, you aren't going to make get much traction, from what I understand. I, I believe that's correct. And also just you're fighting against the establishment. You're fighting against the system. Um, and a lot of these systems have been ingrained in the national politics since the beginning of the country. It's really the same everywhere. And that's why just changing the currency or some sort of universal adoption becomes so difficult because you're fighting against that system 
um, which is both deeply entrenched and deeply corrupt. You know, I want to bring up another election that took place this weekend in Ecuador, which um, the winner ended up being a 35-year-old, more fiscally conservative versus the populist party that's in there. But I think that Latin America is really showing some interesting trends. So he's um, the winner... Daniel Noboa, you know, was, um, I mean, this is, he's being compared to Bukele because Ecuador also faces a lot of crime and a very corrupt, ingrained political system. And so this was considered a vote by the youth that was against establishment. And the mandate is for him to eliminate crime. So it'll be really interesting to see if he, you know, models himself over after Bukele and eliminates gang violence. I honestly do not know what his position is on on Bitcoin or on the economic front, but, you know, it'll be obviously somebody who's 35 is going to have a different position than a populist. Um, You know, uh, his opponent was a a woman who's older and populist. So, you know, another interesting election result to watch um, in the region. For sure, the one comment about Ecuador, Ecuador, of course, has already been pegged to the dollar. So to rip up the uh, economic system which they have in place would be, I think, more difficult than, say, in Argentina for that reason. Hey, quick question, uh, Jers. Um, How does the rest of South America view what's going on in um in Argentina, because, you know, our perspective, I think everybody on this stage, almost our perspective is from is from the United States. And that may be uh, an incorrect perspective. I think in general, uh, although this is changing somewhat, the politics of Latin America has been to the left which uh, sort of goes against the grain of this person who was elected in in Ecuador, um, Milly in Argentina. Um, And I think you are starting to see some candidates on the right that have different different economic perspectives, economic uh, positions. For example, Bolsonaro in Brazil, um, but of course he was unable to win re-election. So it's just really an uphill battle fighting against the the systems that are very ingrained in the culture on the left. And a lot of that has to do with the poverty. You have so much uh, uh, wealth inequality, the, the left, more socialist message is just very popular here. Um, fight against the business owners, fight against people with the money. And it's very difficult culturally to change that perception in a large number of people in, in the population. Yeah, that's correct. And also here in Argentina, uh, we have so, so many people working on the state. You know, maybe, I, I'm not sure about the exact number, but I think it could be uh, almost a million people working on some level on the state, or, or national, or provincial, or municipalities. Uh, so that's why that culture is so engraved in the population, as, as just mentioned. So it's really, really difficult to, to make a real change in, in a short period of time. And that's why maybe uh, 
Bolsonaro couldn't make it to the second uh, election, you know, to, to renew. Uh, so I think it could also happen to Millet if he wins here in Argentina, because this is really, really difficult to change people's minds in, in a short period of time. Although, having said that, uh, if he actually wins the election, it's a huge signal that the people, uh, general population here is changing their minds, you know, because always people here voted for populist uh, politicians, uh, mostly on the Peronist party. It's a left-wing left party. So the fact that Millet could win the election is actually uh, a signal that the people is changing, changing their mind, really. All right. Uh, again, thanks for joining us, Danny. I want to go with Dom Bay for one second, and then we're going to properly introduce Jers and uh, dig in with some stuff with him. Dom? Hey, uh, I just had a quick question for Danny. You know, being in El Salvador now and going there frequently and learning a lot from people here, not just on those who support Bitcoin, but actually learning more from those who are against it or, you know, haven't haven't quite found it yet. What do you think... I mean, you know, have you reconsidered any thoughts on what the best way to introduce Bitcoin is? I think you bring up an excellent point, right, in that you can't change people in a short time. Potentially, the Bitcoin as a monetary exchange maybe is too much out of the gate. And maybe hey, just as a... Yeah. Sorry, bro. But we just actually removed Danny because, like, when he's talking, he's got a lot of background and feedback sometimes. It's And it's uh, when we do get just in general, guys, I mean, this is not trying to be mean to anybody. But when we have people up here, we want them as much as possible to have really good sound. Why? Because we're trying to create uh, information and education and communication that people want to hear, that people are going to share, and that are going to be propagated with high signal. Anytime you're doing a podcast, and I'm not talking about doing this live on Twitter spaces, but if you record it as a pod, you put it up. And if there's segments of bad audio, that is what causes people to switch off and they don't hang around. So we're, as much as possible, not trying to be mean to anybody, but if you have shit audio, you have a lot of stuff going on in the background, you're disconnecting, we're probably going to be moving on from you. I'm not trying to be mean. It's just what we're doing. All right. Good, dumb. No, no, I uh, got it. I'll, I'll uh, hey, we'll talk and circle back. But I think there's some definite value there with Argentina and being able to hopefully learn from some of the speed bumps, learn from what El Salvador did, and, and really put some heavy thought into efficient and, and very calculated rollouts uh, to, to general population. For sure. It's going to be very interesting to watch what happens, both with this election and uh, the follow-on second and third order effects and revisit it a year down the road and five years down the road and 10 years down the road. Because like what's happened with El Salvador has been absolutely fascinating. All right, speaking of these other countries... Way of Jurors. Jurors is an OG sovereignty business provider. He's American citizen, basically, uh, but has been living outside the United States for the last 15 years, if I understand correctly. Uh, 
has an international clientele, accepts Bitcoin as payment, basically um, dual citizen, holds residence cards in a bunch of different countries. I won't say which. If you want to talk about what they are, you're welcome to do that, Jers. But talk to us about um, what is all the sovereignty stuff. Like, I'm familiar with it. I uh, I spend a bunch of time outside the U.S. as well. But there's a ton of people who are interested in this topic, want to know more about how to do it. Why would you do it? So, hi, thanks uh, for the introduction. Basically, what I like to tell people, especially Bitcoiners, Bitcoin uh, is a phenomenal technology, and it is one part of the sovereignty puzzle. Um, it, it makes you uh, a sovereign individual, but on the financial side. And the way I like to describe it, that's only part of the picture. You can have your finances secure, which Bitcoin does for you. But if you don't have freedom of movement, if you don't have the ability to go from country to country, what do you really have in the end? And of course, over the last few years, the world has changed so much. And we've really seen this for the first time in, in most people's lives. They were affected by travel restrictions. They were unable to go see loved ones. They were unable to go from country to country. And basically sovereignty as I see it, is the missing piece of the puzzle that, that helps people uh, prevent that from happening in the future. So, for example, in my personal case, when most people were unable to travel during those couple of years, I was still able to go from country to country. I was flying between uh, South America and Europe on empty 747s. And I saw firsthand going to the airport, people crying because they were unable to go see their children. They were unable to see sick relatives. And this sovereignty stuff, the, the getting the second passports, getting second residences is becoming more and more difficult. And it's something that I always encourage people move faster. Um, it's something you need to start looking into as you keep stacking your Bitcoins you also need to be stacking residences and citizenships because we live in such unstable, unsecure times about what the future holds. And sovereignty, stacking your residence, citizenship is something that is necessary moving forward. Okay. Um, give some examples. I mean, some of this might seem a little possibly dark or um, outside the Overton window for some people, but... Give some examples as to why um, this is important. What what potential scenarios could occur in people's home countries that would make it smart to have these options available to them? So we saw it with a pandemic. Um, I don't think it's outside the realm, realm of possibility that there will be another pandemic that would, again, limit the travel. There has already been a lot of talk by EU governments, by the United States, carbon credits, quote unquote, environmental emergencies, where perhaps they will say you're only allowed to travel this much. Um, also, countries more and more are making legal travel more difficult, visa requirements, um, 
restrictions. And I think governments really more and more, they have it in their interest to keep their population within the country. Yeah, well, that's um, always been in their interest if they want to control people, right? Like it, control of movement, control of money, control of energy, and control of food are basically the pillars of tyranny. It, exactly. I The quote I always come back to, uh, it was during the 2008 Republican debate in the United States, and the congressman Ron Paul, they were going around and all the Republicans were saying, yes, we need to build a wall, we need to build a wall, and they came to him. And he said, no, I'm not in favor of a wall. And the reason is everybody thinks of a wall to keep people out, but a wall can also keep people in. Which is exactly what we saw with Canada. Exactly. And I think more and more we're going to see that. We saw it in Australia. We saw it in New Zealand, where literally for a multi-year period, citizens of those countries were unable to enter or exit the country. Yeah, so basically it's like this is your little prison. We call it a country, but it's really a prison. Uh, You can't go anywhere unless we tell you or allow you to. Exactly. And and, uh, more and more that's just becoming the reality. And think of it as Bitcoin is sort of a hedge against this corrupt fiat system that is collapsing. I'm going to ask you... I'm going to ask you a question here, then I want to go with macro and tone. But like, I said something that might freak some people out. I said prison, it's a prison at a, at a country level. But it, just go with me for a second. If that is true, could that shrink? Can we see prisons at smaller levels? You know what I mean? Like you're looking at these things that they're calling 15-minute cities, and they're like, we're trying to, I think the push by the lizards right now basically is, let's take away the ability to, for humans to move around. Long exactly. distances, especially. Exactly. You you keep people contained in a in a small contained uh, environment. Fifteen minute city could be a state, could be a city, um, could be a country. And by keeping them there, you control them. You you can control every aspect of their lives. And really, citizenships and and residences are the protection from this. If you have another citizenship and something gets bad in the United States or in a European country where you have citizenship at this moment, you have another option should this worst case happen. It's protection. It's hedging your bet. Right. Tracking. All right. Macro, do you uh, have a question or comment to add here? Uh, More of a question than a comment. Um, Let's say hypothetically, 100% agree with you, got to um, have multiple citizenships to ideally ensure your ability to move around in a sovereign manner. Um, I've looked into this some myself, and it seems like most options are going to be at least six figures in USD fiat terms, which is definitely steep for pretty much anybody that's not like basically a business owner or has inherited some wealth or something. Is there any way that you're aware of you help people with that's not going to be basically an immediate six-figure expense, or is that just kind of something that you unfortunately have to live with? No, absolutely there are. Um, so what you're talking about is citizenship by investment, where you just out and out buy a citizenship, uh, the most popular of the Caribbean countries, but there are a few others. 
there are two other options that I help people with. The first is what I did personally, which is citizenship by descent. Um, a huge number, something like 35, 40% of uh, citizens in the United States are entitled to reclaim European citizenship from one of their ancestors. So if you have a citizen, if you have an ancestor who immigrated, could be a grandparent, in some cases a great grandparent or even further back from an EU country, you can reclaim that citizenship without ever setting foot in that country. And that process is much, much less expensive in, in the low thousands. Um, the other option, if, if you don't have the money to invest, you don't have the ancestors, is, of course, a citizenship by residence programs. Um, Latin America is great for that. Uh, many Latin American countries grant citizenship uh, after one to three years of residence. And in most cases, you don't actually have to spend that full three years in that country. So what I help a lot of people do is say establish a residence in, in Argentina, for example, is a good one. You have residence in that country for two years. After two years, you can get an Argentinian passport. And again, it's in the low thousands as opposed to 100,000 plus. Tone Vays, jump in here, man. Good morning. Um, sure. I got uh, two quick questions, but I also have a lot of commas because I'm living that lifestyle as well with uh, passports and setting up multiple residencies. I've been doing this for a while. So questions, do, do you actually have like a business that you help people set these things up or is this just the way you live? Both. It's it's the way I've lived for going on 15 years, more than 15 years now, uh, but I also have a business. Uh, it started out more as something I did for myself and then like a hobby I was doing for friends and, and friends of friends, but now it's an actual business. Um, it has been for six, seven years now. Gotcha. And uh, I got one more question. So for the ancestry, right, what's the best way to go about that, right? Because like my ancestors have moved around probably Europe quite a while, eventually ended up in Russia. But prior to that, I'm guessing that it goes back to the Austro-Hungarian uh, region, like before the 1900s. But how the hell do I prove that? Like, do you know any people that look into that. Like, I don't really want to do one of those DNA tests so that the U.S. government has my entire DNA history. Uh, are those even accepted? Like, how would someone go about tracking down their great-grandparents and which European country they came from? Any advice on that? Yes. So this is probably the number one thing I do. Uh, we work with researchers, especially in that Austrian-Hungarian empire, the former. Um Basically, don't do a DNA test. That won't help you anyways. Um, what we do, we work with you and we sort of trace back your family as far as we can find it. And as we start tracing it back, we can usually get to that ancestor that immigrated, um, starting with the records in the United States, the immigration records. And then once we sort of get a name and a birth date, of the European ancestor that immigrated, the researcher goes and most of those records exist in historical archives. So like a lot of the Austrian-Hungarian records, like in my case personally, uh, I, I located the record in the Warsaw archives. And like my case was really weird because my, uh, so, so my grandfather was born in a small town that was part of uh, Poland at the time. 
But then as the borders changed, it became part of Austria, part of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. It was part of Germany for a while. It's present-day Ukraine. And I was actually eligible to get either Polish, Hungarian, or Austrian citizenship. And I ended up with the Austrian citizenship. Okay, so two more questions on that. Why did you choose Austrian? And did you have an option to say do Austria and Hungary? Technically, um, I, I could do that. Austria is a little bit uh, odd when it comes to the dual citizenship, so you have to be somewhat careful with that. Um, I chose Austria because of the three. Even though the passports were similar, I, I think Austria is the, strongest, the strongest of the three. Austria is considered one of the top five passports in the world, and I did it for that reason. Gotcha. Let me throw some comments in there because, like I said, like I don't really want to dox my stuff, but I guess I have to. So I, I do have a, uh, a citizenship by investment in the Caribbean, which I, I'm so happy I did in the middle of COVID because that just became a lot harder. Uh, the price has gone up like 25, 30% uh, or more. You now have to go to that country and do an in-person interview. So I'm so happy I did that in the middle of COVID. And um, I also have a, I had a residency in Malta. Uh, that was just too annoying. I now have a residency in Panama and I'll probably work on a few more Latin American countries uh, later this year. Uh, but I'm gonna throw in an example as to why a second citizenship is great and also an example of where it creates additional problems. So just so people are aware and I would love to get your comments on both. So uh, for example, when the Russia-Ukraine uh, military conflict started, the citizenship by investment in the Caribbean suddenly closed to all Russians, all Ukrainians, and all Belarusians. So suddenly three countries were people with money that need to get the hell out of those countries, like Russians wanted to leave because you know they didn't want to take part in the war, Ukrainians wanted to leave because they're afraid they're gonna get killed. Suddenly these programs closed for those regions. Uh, probably like uh, Israel could, Israelis could potentially now be shut out from these programs as well because of military conflicts. This is the uh, where it's really good to do it before you need it and have it. And here's an example of where it can fail you. Um, I have a friend, uh, Panamanian, not going to dox his name. He usually hangs out, lurks in these spaces as well. Uh, he's a, a Panamanian citizen and he also has two others. He has a um, or a European one from uh, uh, Spain, and I, and I think one more, uh, Colombian. And he ran into a political problem uh, in Panama, and he fled to the United States seeking asylum uh, for political reasons. And he wasn't allowed to get that asylum because he has a second passport. So when you have dual passports, uh, getting asylum is almost impossible because a country even like the US will say, we agree with your cause, we would give you political asylum, but you are a Colombian uh, citizen. So you need to go back to your other country, uh, Colombia, because you're a citizen of Colombia. But if he goes back to Colombia, he would get shipped back to Panama uh, because they have lots of mutual cooperation. So just be aware that the more passports you have, you are subject to the laws of those countries and other international laws. So I think it's best to have maximum number of residencies and hold on to those residencies as long as you can, because if you've been a resident for like say four or five years, uh, then you can always apply for that passport later when you need it, uh, because then they're not gonna be able to say no because you've been a resident there for so long and you qualify, then getting it earlier than you actually need it. That's just my like two cents on it. Um, some would agree with you. 
I, I actually have a client I'm working with currently who has a similar situation, Venezuelan, but has another nationality and was seeking the refugee status in Spain and because of the second nationality is unable to do that. So that is a problem um, or a consideration, something to be aware of with multiple citizenships. However, I would say that is going to apply more to uh, native-born citizens of, say, Latin American countries than native-born citizens of most European or, say, United States, Canada, um, because it's highly unlikely and unusual that somebody with a U.S. passport is going to be granted refugee status in another country. So that becomes less of a consideration. Um, as far as stacking of residences versus citizenships, um, yeah, it's something to look at on a case-by-case basis, depending on the specific situation of the individual. Um, the disadvantage, I would say, to the residence over the citizenship when you're eligible, it's just not as strong. So, for example, during the pandemic, there were quite a few countries that allowed you to enter and exit with the passport if you were a citizen, but not as a resident. So you just sort of have to weigh the, um, the flexibility and the additional protection that citizenship provides. And I'll throw out one other, which I think in the last week has become um, a consideration with the second citizenship. Um, some countries do have mandatory military service, too. So that is a potential uh, negative that you should also weigh when considering getting the citizenship. Yeah, Although, but that, that's age restricted usually, right? Like usually if you're over 28, that's not going to apply. And uh, I doubt people under 28 have the like the money and resources to get like additional citizenship. But, but more and more, I'm seeing my clients are younger, under 30. And, and some of the countries do go up higher to 35. Some of them are even into the 40s. Um, just it's not I'm not saying, of course, do not get a citizenship because of this, but it's just something to be conscious of. And, and it's a factor. It's something that one should look at. Well, all right, last question. Um, what are your thoughts on surrendering the U.S. citizenship? Pros, cons, are your clients looking to do that? And uh, what would you are you thinking about it yourself? So that is something I've gone back and forth on for a number of years. Um, in the end, I probably will do it myself, uh, mostly for the tax benefits. Um, I'm sure most of most of you know the U.S. is one of only two countries in the world that taxes um, on worldwide income U.S. citizens, even if you are not a U.S. resident. So that's a pretty powerful reason when you start acquiring assets and have good income to get rid of the U.S. citizenship or at least think about it. Um, what I really tell people, the, the, the big deciding factor to renounce or not to renounce is do you or is there a possibility that sometime in the future you're going to need access to the U.S. job market? The, the U.S., for all the problems it has, it is the best job market in the world. Now, we're not talking about starting businesses. You can do that in other countries. You can even start a U.S. business as a non-U.S. citizen, which is something I hope a lot of people do. Um, but the actual W-2'd 
jobs within the U.S. are hands down the best in the world in most cases. So that's the big reason not to renounce. And also, I get a lot of younger people, yeah, I'm thinking of renouncing. And we start looking at their assets. We start looking at how much money they make. And it makes absolutely no sense. I, I think unless you're a pretty high net worth individual who is making uh, in the half million plus range per year, there really is not too much reason to consider giving up the U.S. citizenship. If no one else has questions, I'll keep going, guys. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to pause you guys for one second and just bring up uh, that Tone Vase here. He and I were on a panel together, Pacific Bitcoin. It was absolutely fantastic. We also had Jimmy Song and Pierre Richard. So appreciate you very much, Tone. Incredibly smart guy. Tone's going to be hosting a um, a conference called Unconfiscatable coming up here in December that I'm planning on being at. Um, so I hope a bunch of you guys are going to that too. If you are, let me know. Would love to connect while we're there. Uh, Tone, go ahead with your next question. I have some additional questions as well we've got about 20 minutes left in the show so uh let's go this one applies more for me personally but i'm sure others have a question so because my other passport is caribbean and if i was to surrender my u.s passport my concern is uh i may not you know get a tourist visa off of a caribbean passport if my second passport was you know austria or some other european country with an esta i wouldn't worry at all but have you seen any issues of uh, people getting Caribbean citizenship, surrendering U.S., and then getting denied and not able to, let's say, visit their relatives in the U.S. then after. That is my my biggest concern. If I had a guarantee that I would immediately get a tourist visa back to the States, I would probably start the surrender process well, immediately. Unfortunately, no guarantees in life with, with stuff like that. Um but that said, most people who have the resources and are able to do something like a Caribbean passport have enough assets, have enough uh, of the stuff the U.S. is looking for to get a tourist visa. You're not going to have a problem. Um, again, as you said, if you're from one of the EU or you have a, a tier one passport that, that allows you to use that ESTA, um, there's less to worry about. Although, um, from what I'm hearing, the U.S. has started to deny um, more and more of those estas. So it's something to keep in mind. And that is another reason against doing it is there's no guarantee. So I know personally that's been a consideration of mine. Um, My parents are are older. Um, I have to go back and help them quite a bit. And even though I have a strong passport, should something change or the government decides I've said something they don't like and they deny me access, that's not something I would want to live through. So it's definitely a consideration uh, for those of us with family in the United States still. Yeah, and I guess one last thing, and what I've noticed, actually, I was just denied a global entry, which is not a good sign for potentially getting a future visa to the U.S. And what I've noticed a lot, and it's only happened in the last five to 10 years, the questioning from the government has switched in one specific area. Uh, like, Like my entire adult life until recently, the question has always been, have you ever been convicted of a crime? That question has changed in a very dramatic way. It is no longer have you ever been convicted of a crime uh, or a felony or a misdemeanor. 
it is now, have you ever been arrested for a misdemeanor or a felony, even if it was, let's say, thrown out of court as an improper arrest? And that's one of my cases. This is my situation from when I was 21. So arrested where I and was charged. Arrested, but I was not convicted and it was thrown out of court. Uh, but I have to suddenly deal with this 20 plus years later as it always shows up. Have you ever been arrested as irrelevant as to whether it was it charges stuck or not? Uh, yeah, they uh, have changed the wording and they do become uh, more strict on things like that. Um, one thing you might want to look at, depending on the state, a lot of times, especially for a misdemeanor that's that old, you can actually petition the court to have the record sealed. So uh, it's that been is sealed, but they don't care. It, 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 it has been and, and they don't care. Um, it now shows up. Have you ever like that's a, they even phrase it that way? I mean, they don't care anymore. They want to know. Yeah. Um, the other the flip side of that is even if you have it sealed, right? If they're asking the question, "Have you ever been arrested or charged?" and you deny that, and they somehow find out, I mean, there's kind of there would be consequences to that. Well, there's a lot of debate back and forth between lawyers on that specific question. So, if you have something that's been expunged or sealed, can you legally? Um, say, no, I have not been arrested. No, I have not been convicted. Um, and, and that's something you would need to consult with a lawyer on. It's, it's very specific what the criteria uh, is. And there's a lot of disagreement among lawyers about what you have to and what you can and can't say. Right. This suddenly became a problem for me. And it wasn't a problem for like until like the last five years, it just the, the, because the wording has changed on this one specific question on like significant document forms. One of the exactly. things that is super concerning about that is, is that the way the, the number of laws that, that are being added every single year in the United States alone is, is wild. Like it's hard to even keep track of all this crap. And there was a book that I'm thinking of. I'm, I'm think the title of it was three felonies a day. And I think the author was trying to point out that that there are so many laws that have been written so broadly that it's likely that most Americans are probably committing up to three felonies a day just in the course of going about their regular daily lives if they wanted to, uh, you know, make charges based upon these very widely framed laws. And, and a lot of the laws are in the supplies to tax laws and every other type of laws. They're purposely written vaguely so that they can make a claim you've done something. If, if somebody follows you around long enough, if somebody uh, uh, digs into absolutely every minuscule detail of what you do, they're going to find something in almost every case. Yeah, and now that we're living in this world of, of, of smartphones, we're almost – well, most people in the West – uh, have a smartphone. The smartphones are always listening, and there. And my understanding is basically everything's being recorded in an archive. Like the NSA has these gigantic data centers that capture everything. So whether you're talking on the phone or not, like if it's just near you, have you ever got? Have you, you ever wonder? You know, you're having a conversation with a friend or a family member. You're like, man, my back really hurts. It's been hurting for days. Next thing you know, you've got freaking advertisements for back pain relief things popping up in your feeds and stuff like that. I don't think that's an accident. 
I don't either. I, it's scary times we're living in. And because of all of this, this is the, the fundamental argument for getting a second citizenship now before you need it. All right. A couple of other questions. Um, and then when we hit the 55-minute mark, we're going to start moving to wrap up. Uh, we'll give you some time to make some closing comments, Jers. But, um, you know, how hard is it for somebody to set up foreign businesses, foreign bank accounts, uh, invest in foreign real estate, that type of thing? Because I think, especially in the Bitcoin sort of community, so to speak, there are a lot of people that have been thinking about El Salvador, uh, other countries, like how hard is this to do? Like time-wise, how much money are people looking at um, to do this kind of thing? How much does it cost to live in some of these other countries month to month, year to year? So uh, we'll talk about Latin America since that's really the area that I specialize in. Uh, um, I, I would say a good budget if you're going to come to one of these countries is 4000 a month you can live really really well on 4000 whenever i throw that number out there on twitter a lot of people jump all over me oh i live for a thousand i live for 2000 and yes you absolutely can um you can live um probably better than most people who are from those countries live with a couple thousand dollars a month um, my point is always would you really want to um, what I prefer and what most of the people I advise prefer is, is a lifestyle similar to what they're used to in the United States. So it's living in one of the top neighborhoods, being able to go to restaurants or uh, cook at home with good quality organic meats, that sort of thing. Um, it's considerably cheaper than the United States. But it's not free. And uh, I think 4000 is a good number for most of these places. There are some exceptions. Like I would say you need a little bit more than that in, in a place like Sao Paulo in Brazil. Um, a couple others. Mexico City maybe has gotten pretty expensive. Um, but in most cases, 4000 you would be living a very good quality of life. Macro, do you have a question? Yeah. Um, one other thought, I guess it's kind of adjacent to this, but it would be more relevant probably for the the people from the U.S. and the um, conversation here. Have you dealt with anybody that utilized like a family office type structure to try to offshore assets and things? Like, because I know the one challenge, especially with I guess if you did want to renounce your U.S. citizenship is, is you have a, a massive exit tax. And I know there's probably some ways you could at least structure things. So maybe you wouldn't have to pay that if, you know, the legal entities that own the assets get changed. But I don't I don't know that much about it. I've just heard of people doing stuff like that. So just curious if you have any thoughts on it. There are some strategies. Um it's very case specific depending on what sort of assets you have. Um, it's beyond the scope that we can talk right now because it, it's very complicated. If it's something somebody's interested in, feel free to send me a message and, and I can either help you myself or point you in the right direction. Um, but what I would say is the exit tax, what 
the the technical aspect of that law is every single asset you have has to be liquidated. And by liquidated, it means if you own a house, for example, and you purchase the house at half a million and the IRS considers that the value of that house is now $2 million, even if you don't sell that house, you have to pay an exit tax on that capital gain of $1.5 million. So that's why for somebody with assets with a lot of income, there's a lot of strategy that goes into um, like you said, setting up structures and protecting the assets you have um, and timing. Timing becomes everything because um, the values of all these assets change so much. So it's sort of timing when you're going to have money coming in to actually renounce the citizenship. Man, so many Bitcoiners I know who have bought Bitcoin and lost it somehow, like in, in what if for whatever reason, you know, they lost their keys or they lost access to their drives. And it's just a horrible, horrible thing to witness. And I feel bad for all of them. Yeah, it's, uh, again, it's, it's setting up these structures. I, I actually, I'll, I'll come back to the question you asked a minute ago, the cost to set up the structures. It's really case specific, depending on what your needs are and what you're trying to do. But in most cases, these registers, uh, th these uh, residences and the structures you need with the businesses to come to, say, a Latin American country, you're in the low thousands. It's not something if you have assets, uh, you know, it's, it's not in the tens of thousands. It's less than that. So it is something that that is quite affordable to do. And especially for Bitcoiners out there, as the value of Bitcoin increases, it is a consideration, you know, what are the tax consequences um, of this as they change the legislation? And even, even with the cold storages, perhaps down the road, they're going to figure out how they're going to be able to tax this. So it's setting up those structures now before you really need them so that when Bitcoin finally hits what we all know it will eventually, you have the legal structure in place to legally, and, and the key word here is legally, we're not talking about doing something sketchy, we're just talking about legally setting up those structures so that you will be able to pay either no tax or, or much lower taxes than you would have to pay, say, in the United States. Well said, sir. All right. We are um, coming up on the end of the show. We're going to go with a couple of lightning round questions. Let's make them fast, gentlemen, and we'll move to wrap. Uh, Peter. Peter, go for it. Oh, go, go ahead, Tom. Okay. You, guys, you guys are killing me. <laughs> okay. 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 So the exit tax, my understanding is that it's only on assets above $2 million. So if you uh, like mark everything to market, but it adds to under $2 million. You don't have to pay any exit tax. Is that true? Um, yes and no. Uh, generally speaking, it's correct. But again, the way they mark assets um, is maybe not the way you would think they do. So uh, it's always a very complicated calculation. Yeah, but, okay. but, but, but yes is the answer to the question. In okay. general, it's only over $2 million. And one more okay. real quick. Uh, would a trust be one of those things? Like if let's say I have some assets in a trust from my parents, uh, do they look into the trust or because the parents are still alive, that doesn't count yet? It depends on the specific setup of the trust. 
So, so again, it depends. Um, there are ways with trust that trust that those assets can be excluded because um, you haven't realized those gains. The trust has not passed to you. Correct. Uh, yeah, the irrevocable trust type, like it, the most exactly. But you just have to. You have to. They'll really look at the trust, so you have to make sure it's set up correctly. All right, Peter. So um, it sounds to me like, and in, in taking into account. Um, you know, how Latin American countries work, it sounds to me like it is better to uh, uh, try to become sovereign or move towards sovereignty without uh, anything but liquid assets. Is that is that correct? You want to you don't want to be moving your household to to uh, Latin America with you. What do you mean by household? Well, I mean, you know, your household items. It's not like moving ah. from, from one house to another or one residence to another here in the United States. Generally speaking, it's not going to make sense to do that. Um, some countries do sort of give exclusions where you can bring a container of stuff. Um, it can make sense. I know in Brazil, it can make sense in Argentina where certain technology item, cars, motorcycles, things like that are very expensive. But in most cases, it just won't make any sense, especially if there's no tax exclusion. They'll just kill you on the import taxes that you have to pay. So, so most of the time... I'll let you bring a container in. Well, if you can ship a container or two, uh, like tax-free completely. I'm sorry? Panama lets you do it. Panama lets you ship like a one or two containers tax free, like if you're going to move there. Yeah, it's certain. Panama is another one. It just depends. You, you really have to do a personal calculation of the value and see if it makes sense for you. In most cases, it does not make sense unless you really have specific uh, sort of odd items that you're going to be importing. Yeah, I really, I really think right. his question was a little bit different, to be honest with you. I think it was more like, theoretical like should you just set up these passports and not actually move and live in those countries but just keep living where you are but have those as backup i think that's what the question was more about i think again that's a that's a personal issue um there, there are definitely reasons to do that i have a lot of clients who are just stacking residences and citizenships uh, as as sort of a hedge against potential things that could happen um, I think especially to set up a good tax residence. Uh, Panama's excellent. Paraguay, those are probably the two best ones in Latin America at the moment. Um, it's very low cost to set up. And even if you can't quite use the, the tax-free jurisdiction at this point, you have it set up. So later, should you move out of the United States, it's ready to go. You have a tax jurisdiction you can use where you legally are paying 0%. Okay, we need to wrap the show. Um, I want to say thanks to uh, the way of jurors, the jurors way for being here today. This is really cool. In fact, jurors, I think this is an interesting enough topic that people would want to hear more about this again, especially in the Bitcoin community. I suspect that we could probably have you back once a month or once every other month or something like that if you're open to it, because I bet you a ton of people are going to want to know more. I would definitely for those, be open to that. Awesome. Awesome. For those who are interested in following this guy, if you're listening to the podcast, he is at the Jer's Way, J-E-R-Z, the Jer's Way on Twitter. Check this dude out. Um, that is a wrap. Jer's, do you have any closing comments you want to make as we finish up here? Uh, just thanks again for having me. Um, feel free to reach out, send me a DM. Uh, happy to help citizenships, residences, 
foreign bank accounts, tax structures, foreign business setup, anything like that, I'm your guy. Sweet. All right. Uh, you have been listening to Cafe Bitcoin. We're pretty much done. Want to quickly point out and uh, suggest to you guys check out Bitcoin Veterans. We record that pod every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Don't forget, you can get early bird tickets for Pacific Bitcoin 2024 are on sale at the basically the cheapest price you're ever going to be able to buy them at. They are refundable through the end of February. Links should be in the nest. You've been listening to Cafe Bitcoin, the place for your morning news. Preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry. Also a podcast on Fountain, Spotify, and Apple. If you cannot catch the live show on Twitter, throw me at Alex Danzik or at Swan a follow to be notified of when those drop. Thanks to Swan Bitcoin, sponsor of the show. My crew, Ant, Peter, Sats for Life, Wicked Dombe, and my producer, Jacob Pope. You guys are absolutely fantastic. My name is Alex Stanzik. I'm your host, Work with Swan. Want to know more? Shoot me DM. Thanks to the speakers, as always. Appreciate you guys coming on here every single day, teaching people about this bright orange future and what I call getting on the damn mission. Why are we on this mission? because it's pretty damn important. I'm going to play a quick clip for you. Bear with me. Roll it. When we bought Bitcoin, we bought 250 million. No one, no public company had ever bought any. People thought we were crazy. So then we bought another 175 million. People thought we were crazy. Then we bought 600 million more. People said, you can't stand on it. It'll destroy you. It's like standing on a bridge made of steel. And I concluded, it's the perfect engineered material to solve our problem, but people are living in fear. And how are we gonna get them to not be fearful? And I, re I was reminded of Andrew Carnegie's example. It's like, build the bridge, go stand out in the middle of the bridge. You build an airplane, fly the airplane. Show people that it's not gonna break. That's what MicroStrategy did. We said, well, if it's good for a hundred million, it's good for a billion. If it's good for a billion, we might as well go for four billion, right? And at some point people will realize that they have more to fear by not embracing this technology than by embracing it. Get on the damn mission. Let's go. Love all you guys. Everybody go out there. Have a great day today and crush it.